Alright, Genesis Genesis 18.25 It says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Second <laughs> <laughs> uh, Corinthians 5.10 It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. heavy first, so if you're upset about how heavy it's going to get, you can blame him. Um, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, we need to hear from you. Lord, hearts that are hard, may they be softened. Minds that are close to you, may they be opened. Ears that have not heard you, heard from you, may they hear from you tonight. Jesus, anoint your truth again. Holy Spirit, you spoke You spoke through so many things. Speak through me. We're here to hear from you and no one else. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we live in, in a pretty entitled world. We live in a society where if someone believes in God, they usually feel pretty entitled to His grace. And even if someone doesn't believe in God, you always hear this when they talk. They say, but if there is a God, He'll forgive me. He'll forgive me. He won't send me to hell. I'm also entitled to His grace. And we as Christians, at times, feel entitled to give God's grace away whenever and however we want. And I know I'm not talking about when we give grace to someone for uh, you know hurting us or doing something to us. I'm talking about us saying that God has given you grace and you have accepted it when really that might or might not be true. We feel entitled to do that quite often. And yeah, it sounds harsh, but we'll talk about it a little bit. We think that if God is real, He's not going to send people to hell. He won't punish anybody. Because that just sounds kind of mean. We think if God is real, that His grace is a free ticket for us to just live however we want. That's usually the mindset when it comes to grace. My sophomore year of college, I ended up dating this girl. Definitely shouldn't have dated. There's a lot of, a lot of relationships like that. And it was just horrible. And it never should have happened. It ended up ending like it was going to. Uh, there were things we did with each other that just proved we didn't respect or really love each other. So eventually we broke up. But she kept trying to see me. And I had just started coming to small group. And so this one day, she pulls this card on me and she says, Hey, are you serious? Like, I know you don't want to talk to me, but today's our dog's birthday. Like, you, you, you can't just not say happy birthday. And I don't know what was going through my mind. I somehow thought, yeah, that does sound pretty messed up. I should probably be up with you. <laughs> it was a valid reason, I guess, when at the time. It sounds stupid now. But anyways, so we meet at this park near my parents' house, and I ended up saying, you know, happy birthday to the dog, and we started... <laughs> we don't know when this dog's birthday is. We bought it at a pound, or she bought it at a pound. I was there. Um, anyways... We started talking, of course, like we started flirting, and she ended up telling me that she said, hey, look, like my parents think that I'm staying at a friend's house. We should like go, go stay at a hotel or something. And again, remember, I'm like, I'm in small group and I'm hearing from the Lord like for the first time in my life. Um, and I remember I was like, oh man, like I really wanna do this because you're right in front of me, but I know if I leave, 
and you're not in front of me, I'm not going to go meet you again. Like, I won't go meet you there. So I kind of said, like, no, no, let's just, like, let's just do this here. She got mad, like, no, 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 I need to take the dog back. And I was like, God, like, whatever. And so she got really mad, and we got really quiet for a while. And I started thinking to myself in the car, I was like, okay, okay, like, I know, like, I know now. Like, I know I've experienced that the Lord loves me so much. And I know if I do this, like, I can ask him to forgive me tomorrow, and I know he will. Like, I know he will. And I'll just start all over again. And as I'm sitting there silently in my car, or in, in her car, like, I, the Lord just put something in my mind, and he asked the question, he said, why would you hurt someone just because you know they're going to forgive you afterwards? Like, why would you intentionally choose to hurt someone just because you know they love you enough to take you back afterwards? And for the first time in my life, I was like, oh gosh, to get out of here. And so I ended up leaving. But anyways, the point I'm getting at is that the first question I asked myself, or the first statement thought I had was that, you know, like the Lord loves me so much. Like if I do this, I know I can do this and he'll still forgive me. Do you see what I'm saying? That was my first thought. And this is this, like this situation is a perfect description, a perfect depiction of how our world, the misconception we have of grace it's that we use grace as a license to live however we want. We think that because God is forgiving, that we can just do whatever we want and He's going to forgive us. And not only is that cruel to hurt someone like that because you think they'll forgive you afterwards, but the Bible, quite honestly, kind of speaks clearly against this. So I'll read you a few of them. Romans 6.1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? so that grace may abound by no means. Jude 1.4 says that ungodly people pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. He's just saying that ungodly people will use the grace of God as an excuse to live sensually. And Hebrews 10.26 says, for if we go on sinning, this one's huge, if we go on sinning willfully, purposefully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for us. Grace is meant to set us free from our selfishness and our stupidity. But grace is not for any of us in here that choose willfully, purposely choose ourselves over God and know we're doing it. So this means that none of us in here can assign grace to ourselves or others unless there is evidence for it. None of us can say we can, like I said, give our grace to someone, but we cannot assign and say you've, you've accepted God's grace when really there's no evidence for it. So... How do we know if someone has grace? How do we know if we have grace? How do we know if we're fake? Well, how do you treat people? What do you talk about? What do you give your time to? What do you fight for in life? What's your priority, Jesus or friends? Jesus or family? That one gets a little deeper. But if you watch someone's life, you will know if they've really received the grace of God. You can see it in them. Their life is the evidence. Does that make sense? We can't assume any of it. I look, I look at people. No one benefits from a lie. We can't go around pretending that our friends, our family are saved if really they're not. It doesn't benefit them by giving someone the benefit of the doubt. You see what I'm saying? I look at my own family and people I love in light of what the Bible says, not in light of what I think. And if there's not the evidence to prove that the grace of God is in their life, it's just not there, and that's the reality, as hard as that is to say, you know? But, hey, look. 
it doesn't do us any good to say this. Hey, look, you can't judge where they're at, okay? Like, God's given them grace. Or you can't say, it does no one any good to say, hey, look, like, what you did is okay. Where you're headed because of this is okay. Like, God's given you grace. It doesn't do anyone good to do that. Yes, God has grace with us. That is very clear because of the cross. But we can't buy into a grace movement that allows everyone to do anything and excuses it with grace. That's what's happening. That is the misconception of grace is that everyone gets excused for what they're doing and we excuse it with God's grace. It's not helping anybody. Everybody needs correction. <sighs> oh, and we can't think, i I got to say this, please hear me rightly, we cannot think that we can do things to get God's grace either. You see what I'm saying? I am talking about doing things as evidence, but not doing things as a means to get it. So please hear me rightly. So the question isn't, do we have grace? The question is, where is the evidence for it in my life? Where is the evidence for it in my, in my friends' lives? Um, what was I saying? Oh, Robin, my wife, my beautiful wife. She was looking through my sermon to make sure I didn't have any weird typos or say anything stupid. And she ended up typing something in that it was pretty good. She's never done it before, so I'll say what she said. She said that grace is getting something you don't deserve and responding in complete life transformation that is evidenced by good works. You receive grace by trusting Jesus. It's that simple. And you know that someone has done that when you look at their lives. You see what I'm saying? But here's where another misconception comes in. Our world hates when we look at each other's lives and say that something is wrong. You know what I'm saying? Our world doesn't like to be corrected, so we've come up with the phrase that everyone loves to say. I'm sorry to everyone. I don't mean to generalize, but you hear it a lot. Hey, you can't judge me. You can't judge me. That's the statement everyone says. You can't judge me. So, anyways, no one wants to be told they're wrong. Being wrong has become so offensive in our world that everything's just right now. We want to say that everything's right. So the phrase came out, you can't judge me. People say, you don't know me. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've gone through, so you can't judge me. You see what I'm saying? Like I know we've all heard this, and quite, quite honestly, some of us might have said things like, hey, look, I just can't judge them. Like I can't judge them. We say that even about ourselves, about judging people. You see where I'm going so far? Huh. I know that people hate being judged, but... There isn't a single person here that doesn't judge something. We all judge everything and everyone. I'll give you a good example. So, uh, what was I going to say? Where is it? Where is it in my head? Here we go. So even by saying that someone is judging you, you're making a judgment claim. You see what I'm saying? You are judging that someone is judging you. <laughs> Who here locks the car, their car door before they come to Chi Alpha or go anywhere? Right? What? None of you guys lock your doors? I'll find some. I'll find your car somewhere. I know you all lock your doors. You all lock your home, and you're doing it because you're making a judgment claim that there are dangerous people around us. You are judging that people are dangerous. So if you lock your doors, you do judge. You see what I'm saying? We choose who to date by making judgment claims of I judge that this person looks better than that person, when really that's very subjective. I judge that I like this personality better than that personality. Again, subjective. We all judge everything. So, 
Everyone judges everything, and we should judge each other, but we hate being judged. And there's two reasons why. One of them I will nip in the butt really quick. Uh, the first one is moral relativism. It's like what our society thrives on, a morally relativistic society. And very simply put, moral, moral relativity is just saying that uh, everything's relative. What you think is right is what you think is right. What I think is right is also right. What's truth to you isn't truth to me. We all have our own truth, and that's okay. Um, what else is it? Oh, yeah, I don't have to believe what you believe because what I believe is right. I was trying to think of all these different things. So how can you tell me what's wrong if my right isn't your right? You see what I'm saying? Like, this is everywhere. You know what? Right? We do see this, okay? All right. So this mindset is predicated again. 30 seconds. 30 seconds, and it'll be nipped. Nipped. So, this entire mindset and philosophy is predicated on one statement, that all truth is relative. This whole philosophy lives and dies on the statement that all truth is relative. But, by saying all truth is relative, you're making an absolute claim that there are no absolute truths. So this whole statement is a self-defeating statement, or if you want to say, well, even that statement's relative, then you're saying that sometimes there are absolute truths. You see what I'm saying? This is a self-defeating statement, self-defeating mindset. I will, we won't go any farther. That's all it took, 30 seconds. Yeah. Man. Oh, man. That's so cool. Yeah, I get excited about that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, second one. Second one. We don't like being judged because, like I said, we should judge. We all do judge, but we judge wrongly. We judge wrongly. The Bible says there are two different types of ways to judge. And I'll give you a really good example. Two years ago, I had a, a guy in a small group named Zeke Upchurch. He was the sweetest guy I think I've ever met. He'd come swim with me every Friday morning. Uh, sorry, I thought that was my phone. Uh, he'd come swim with me every Friday morning. And uh, Aaron remembers, he came to swim, didn't work well with his stomach that morning. I think another guy came to swim, he threw up. Jeremy came to swim, he threw up. But it was okay. So after his first semester of college, he became a Marine. And so he's no longer here in Las Cruces. He's not dead. I love Zeke. Zeke, I love you. I told him that I was talking about him tonight. Um, but yeah, he's in North Carolina now. And for being a great guy, everyone has just that one thing. It's the same movement. Everyone has that one thing that it's just a little off. It's like that one thing. It's like, ah, oh, dude, really? For example, Jeremy watches my house whenever we're gone. And you always, it's always fun to see what people watched on Netflix while you were gone. And the whole Netflix history is full of chick flicks. Anytime I get gone. So one of two things is happening. Either him and he men are having a date night, or Jeremy just really loves chick flicks a lot. So I'll err on the side of you love chick flicks. But so for Zeke, for Zeke, and we'll all understand this, his is just, it's just not, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to like swallow. He's not a Cowboys fan, like all of us here. He's not. I know, see, we all got sick when we said that. Right, Isaiah? Oh, man. I know we all agree. He's a Carolina Panthers fan. And I have told him over and over that the Cowboys are better, which, again, is me making a judgment claim. See what I'm saying? I'm judging that he is liking the wrong team and should like my team. I've told him this before, but I don't leave him there. I don't just say, hey, your team, you, you know, you like the wrong team. 
So it sucks for you. I say, dude, you like the wrong team. You gotta be a Cowboys fan. You see what I'm saying? So what I'm trying to get at, and this is where the difference comes in, is that I point out what's wrong, but I do it so that I can help him see what's right. Now, I know this is an absolute <laughs> joke when it comes to football, because football, there's no absolute great team, except the Cowboys. But in all seriousness, like I'm talking about truth when I say this. So this mindset is the difference between judging someone in the right way and judging someone in the wrong way. When we judge wrongly, we see the wrong in someone and we leave it there. We tell them what's wrong and we do nothing about it and we say nothing else. When we judge rightly, we see what's wrong and that it's in the way of something right and we try to help remove it. Do you see what I'm saying? I'll give you a few examples. <clears throat> right judging says what you're doing is wrong and it's keeping you from something better. It's keeping you from something good and I want to help you remove that thing from your life. Do you see what I'm saying? Wrong judging says, ooh, nah, that sucks for you, like, that's wrong. See ya, you know, like, you just leave them there. You leave them to wallow in, in their wrongness. So, but wait, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1, not to judge each other. He did. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> so, we'll go with that really quick. The Greek word for judge in that like in, in the, that passage, is krino, which means to condemn, to damn someone, or to decree something. What Jesus is saying is don't look at someone and make a final verdict. You don't have that power. You can't condemn anything. Only God can condemn and save and make a final verdict on anybody. What Jesus is actually saying is that you should judge and point out the wrong or right in something. He literally says in Matthew 18, 15, if a brother sins against you, go and point out their fault in hopes of that they will listen to you. To point out a fault in someone, you have to make a judgment claim that they're doing something wrong. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So yes, Jesus says in Matthew 7 1, don't judge. He's just saying don't make a final verdict. He says in Matthew 18, right? Matthew 18, point out the fault that's there in hopes that they'll fix it. You see where this right and wrong judgment is? Yeah. Cool. Without correction, oh, yeah, in short, wrong judging ends in condemnation. When we judge wrongly, it ends in condemnation. When we, when we judge rightly, it ends in correction. The end goal of right judging is correcting someone, correcting a wrong. So, without corrections, our families, our friendships, our life, our marriages, they're going to just run straight into the ditch. And I was going to say this, but I kind of have to. I want to. I need to. Our world doesn't like punishment. But if wrong has no consequences, then laws and rules are just advice. There has to be punishment for wrong. You see what I'm saying? No one likes the, no one likes punishment, but laws and rules without punishments are just it's just advice. It's not a law or a rule. So, so that big misconception about judging each other is out of the way. Uh, but what happens if we judge someone inaccurately? This is where we're going to get into our last point. What happens if we judge that someone is saved, and we tell them that they are, and we affirm that they are, but they're really not? This is where these two connect. Our first two points connect right here. This is where the right understanding of God's grace and the right way to judge each other and ourselves comes together. If we don't judge each other accurately, that person will still 
no matter what our judgment was, we'll have to stand before God and hear the right judgment. So when we judge inaccurately, if someone really has received God's grace, we're not doing them any favors. The Bible says that all, all are going to appear before the throne of God. All are going to appear before Jesus on Judgment Day. All are going to appear before the courtroom of Jesus. It doesn't matter what our interpretation of God is, and it doesn't matter our view on religion. Every person will have their trial. But why? Why does everyone have to go to trial? <sighs> Most people think that God is loving and He couldn't possibly send someone to suffer for all of eternity. That is our third big misconception we need to get out of the way. Because we don't think judgment is real because we don't think God would really do that to us. You see what I'm saying? That's what we have to get at now. So why does the Bible and why did Jesus talk so much about judgment that each one of us has to face? For those of you who don't know, the last two years, we weren't in this room. We were actually in Diminici. And one time I was supposed to be speaking. I was a little behind on writing the sermon, so worship started and I went to another room. It was dark. It was nice. I was ready to focus, but I was exhausted. Kind of like tonight a little bit. And so I go to this room and I think, oh man, I need a story. Like, what's going what's gonna, to like, help this point? And so I thought, I need to think. So I set my head down on the desk and I thought, okay. Oh, Jesus. And then I just fell asleep. I fell asleep mid-prayer, and I woke up, I think in the third worship song that night. It freaked me out. I won't tell anyone what night that was, because I remember it was horrible. I felt horrible about how, how the story went. I don't think I had a story either way. But every week after that, I kept going back to this room to focus and write. And each time, I kept allowing myself to put my head down and I kept getting the result of me falling asleep while I'm trying to do work. Do you see what I'm saying? I kept allowing something, and I kept getting the same thing as a result. This is the point I'm getting at, and I'll expand on it in a second, is that you get what you allow. If you allow someone to treat you poorly in a relationship, you're going to have, and you're going to get an unhealthy relationship. If you allow yourself to be lazy, you will get a life of laziness and of undiscipline. If you allow yourself to choose selfishness, you're going to get a life that's meaningless and empty. When we allow some of the most dangerous criminals to live freely, we're going to get a dangerous world. Do you see where this problem is coming in? If God allows selfishness into heaven, he will just get another selfish place like earth, and it would cease to be heavenly. If we choose selfishly here, God will not allow us to hurt him or anyone else anymore by choosing selfishly for eternity. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. We lock up dangerous criminals so that we don't have a dangerous world. Obviously, it doesn't hurt too much at the moment. But Jesus will not allow selfishness in heaven because it would cease to be heavenly and would just turn into another world like this. Where there is selfishness, there has to be a trial. Where there is evil, there has to be judgment. That's why God has a judgment day. That's why every Christian and non-Christian will stand in front of Jesus. He will see it fairly, and his decision will be just and fair. The difference between our court system and the court of Jesus is that we won't get to state our case. Now, this sounds bad. No one's going to get to say anything in their own defense on that day. So as much as 
some of us might have a plan. Like, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that. I'm going to tell them all these things I did. I'm going to show them this. I'm going to do that. The difference is we don't get to say anything. 2 Corinthians 5.10 affirms this, and I'll say it right now. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The day we stand before Jesus, we won't get to say anything because our actions are what are going to say everything for us. Our actions will testify for or against us. If we claim to be a Christian, which 75% of America does, oh, I'm not going to go down that. It was a bad day today this morning. I was really sad about something. Um, if we claim to be Christian and we claim to have the grace of God in our lives, our actions will be the evidence. And that is all he's going to look at. Us saying that we believed in Jesus or that we believed in God are not going to matter on that day, no matter how much we repeat it. Our actions are going to have to say it for us. Charles Spurgeon, another great friend of mine, I was a little farther from meeting him, but he says, Hence, in that day, every secret sin will be published. What was done in the chamber, what was hidden in the darkness, shall be published as upon the housetop. Every secret thing you've done, with great care you've concealed it, with great care you've hidden it, most dexterously you've covered it up, but it shall be brought out to your own astonishment to form a part of your judgment. We all have secrets. We all have things we do in private, things that no one knows we think, no one, things no one knows we look at. Things no one knows we say except the person we're saying them to. And man, I just got to keep going because Spurgeon is so good. To anyone here who claims to love Jesus, this is for you, which means this is for me. If you claim to love Jesus, if your actions are not superior to theirs, to the world, then you may profess whatever you want about your faith, but you are deceived. And as deceivers, you will be discovered at the last day. If grace does not make us different from other men, it is not the grace of God that He gives. It is not the grace that God gives. This is how each person is going to be judged. Man, it's heavy. It's getting heavy. God is the judge, and the Bible says, like Aaron said earlier, that the judge of all the earth will do right. He will judge rightly by each of us. We're not going to fool Him. We're not going to cheat the system. And we're not going to outsmart him. He's going to look at the actions of every person in here. Our world has sought, lost sight of the reality of judgment. Our world has lost sight that, there will, that this will happen. And I don't intend to scare anyone. That's not any way. That's not how I met Jesus. That's not what made me love him. But this is the truth we have to know. We have the misconception that God is just going to forgive everyone. And our world has so much tolerance that we forget that God will not tolerate selfishness. He will not allow selfishness in His kingdom. And that's why there will be judgment. And this is how you know that it's not true that God's just going to forgive you. Just because. You see what I'm saying? There was something crazy I thought about. <clears throat> it was that everything, like, every word that you said, it's going to be played back right in front of you. And He's going to be listening to it. There's no rewinding it. There's no changing it. Everything you've said is going to be played back to Him. Everything you've done is going to be played for Him. You get to watch it. And what are we going to say? What are we going to say? What are we going to say if we say, I love Jesus, but what about this? What about that? Why did you say that? 
Why do you treat them like that? Why do you think so pridefully? Why this? Why that? You know, like, what are we going to say? It's scary. Anyways, I'll say this and we'll be done. We talked about this two weeks ago that every person in this room, every person in this world has broken God's law of love. We have broken his heart. His law is for the good of the universe and we have broken it. And every person in this room is deserving of the death penalty because of it. So that we don't make heaven look more like hell. God is a judge that cannot just overlook your evil. He can't overlook our evil. But he loves you too much to make you have to pay for it. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Because he loves you too much to make you have to pay for it yourself. You see what I'm saying? He had to hear on the cross all the reasons that he had to die because of you and because of me. Everything you've done since you've been here to college, everything you've done in high school, he had to hear it all as he was killed. Everything I've done. So, the only hope for us in God's court is if we really do accept Jesus' payment for us. And if we prove it by loving and following him. For those who don't care about Jesus, your heart knows, and I know this, I thought about this, your heart knows what God is saying to you. And I really don't intend to further explain what happens there. If you don't care about Jesus, I, there's no reason to go down there. It's obvious. But for those of you who think that you're going to tell God that you trust in Him, for those of us that think on that day we're going to say to Jesus, I trusted you, remember, remember one more time that your words really do mean nothing. Your actions, what you do, what you fight for, what you think about, what you talk most about, what you love most, what you fight for, what your priorities are, that's going to testify for or against you. God will give no favoritism, and I promise you will have a fair trial. We will have a fair trial. But what if your faith has no evidence? What will you do? A faith that never evidences itself by good works is a dead faith and a faith that won't save anyone. Charles Spurgeon says this last thing. It's not going to be their talk, but their deeds. Their deeds shall be the evidence of their grace, or their deeds shall be the evidence of their unbelief. And so by their works... They shall stand before the Lord, or by their works they shall be condemned as evidence and nothing more. What is he going to hear when every word you've spoken is played back for him? What is he going to see when everything we've done is played back for him? Ah. What's he going to see that no one, none, of, none of our friends know? What is he going to see and hear that none of our friends have heard? Tonight, I'm not trying, like I said earlier, to scare people into choosing Jesus because that's not how it works. If the love of Jesus on the cross isn't enough to change your heart, then no promise of a glorious heaven and no threat of a scary hell, which is true, is going to change your heart. If the love of Jesus isn't enough, nothing else will be. This isn't about heaven and this isn't about hell. This is about Jesus. This is about getting to be with Jesus. This is about being given an opportunity that none of us here deserve. You don't deserve a friend like him. Lord, you have to speak to people. What you've done in us in the past, would you do right now? You are worthy of love. You are worthy of our life. You are worthy of our sacrifice. You are worthy of us. I pray, God, that hard hearts have been softened by your love. I pray that eyes have been opened to the reality 
of loving you. Thank you, God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the cross. We love you so, so much. Please speak to us, Jesus. Please, please speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen.